Our scripture reading this morning uh, comes from two passages. Firstly, uh, Philippians chapter 3, the full chapter, and then Romans chapter 13, verses 1 to 7. If you have a Bible with you, please turn with me there now, beginning with Philippians 3. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write these same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. 
and from Romans 13, verses 1 to 7 in the English Standard Version. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For, because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to do this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Let us pray together. Lord, I thank you for this chance to be here in the sanctuary, and I just wish my brothers and sisters, members of this community known as Bethesda, could be here uh, to hear that beautiful song that you will hold us fast uh, during this time of uncertainty and difficulty. It is great to rest in your arms. Thank you so much for the, the Hooker family who led us in this worship and I think really gave us a moment of uh, reprieve uh, from the pandemic. Lord, we can rest in your arms, and that is our desire. And now, Lord, as we prepare to hear your word, give Pastor Mark uh, wisdom, discernment, and clarity as he seeks to bring the Holy Spirit's message to us, focusing on ancient scripture and bringing it to us today in modern times. Lord, we thank you for this chance to be together, and we thanks for this chance to be together via Zoom and other modalities. Lord, let us rest in your arms. Please continue to hold us fast. Thank you, Neil and Kate. And thank you, Yuri and Michelle and Ellie and Ari. Um, We have worshiped this morning so far, and I'm very grateful to bring you a message that I believe the Lord has laid on my heart, uh, including the timing of it. It wasn't my timing. I don't feel like. And also, as I noted before, it has been percolating in me for probably 25 years or so, but I'll not take the uh, requisite uh, time here this morning that reflects 25 years of thinking. Uh, Hopefully it'll be boiled down uh, a little bit uh, more finely uh, for you this morning. Dr. Miroslav Volf, V-O-L-F, Volf, Miroslav Volf, is a truly world-class biblical Christian theologian, which seems harder and harder to find these days. He's currently at the Yale Center for Faith and Culture. 
I think I first became aware of him when I read his After Our Likeness, The Church as the Image of the Trinity, back in the 90s. It was one of those many, many books that I read in seminary in addition to my assigned reading, which were at least as formative and beneficial to me as my assigned reading. And After Our Likeness was especially influential in my own thinking right up until today. I became a true admirer and quasi-student, I would say, from afar, as I read with rapt attention his later Exclusion and Embrace, a theological exploration of identity, otherness, and reconciliation in which he works through his own practice of biblical Christian faith as an ethnic Croat in the midst of Serbian atrocities, even as his father was still there in Croatia, a persecuted Pentecostal pastor in Croatia. Dr. Wolf followed up Exclusion and Embrace with an equally worthwhile theological sequel entitled The End of Memory, Remembering Rightly in a Violent World, in which he reflects on the importance of keeping a true historical record for the causes of both justice and of grace. When I learned some time ago he'd written something on living our biblical Christian faith in public, both as individuals and as the Church of Jesus Christ, I scooped it up. And here it is, a public faith, how followers of Christ should serve the common good. He writes, quoting here now, when it comes to the public role of religion, the main fear is that of imposition. One faith imposing aspects of its own way of life on others. Religious people fear imposition. Muslims fear Christians. Christians fear Muslims. Jews fear both. Muslims fear Jews. Hindus fear Muslims. Christians fear Hindus and so on. Secularists, those who subscribe to no traditional religious faith at all, fear imposition as well imposition of any faith, since they tend to deem all of them irrational and dangerous. The fear of imposition of religious views often elicits demands for the suppression of religious voices from the public square. The people who espouse that view argue that politics, one major public sphere, could re, should remain unilluminated by the light of revelation. That is a line from another theologian that he quoted. Unilluminated by the light of revelation and should be guided by human reason alone. This is the idea of a secular state forged over the last few centuries. Dr. Wolf goes on to argue that biblical Christians effectively vacating the public sphere or allowing our voices to be muted, which has happened largely here in the West, both neglects our unique biblical Christian role of speaking the whole truth in the world, including the gospel, and abdicates our role to do good for the world, what he calls the common good. Now, we might tend to think and say, Christians vacating the public sphere allowing our voices to be muted, which has happened largely in the West, 
Don't we hear of Christians saying something or doing something stupid or both in the media practically all of the time? Well, my answer is yes and no. We do hear about Christians saying and doing very stupid stuff in the media all the time, and we tend to get generically lumped in with them. One of my saddest moments in a very, very long time was as I watched the hard assault on the United States Capitol January 6th. Several Christian symbols were prominently displayed in the midst. Bibles held overhead, presumably by pastors, as if providing a rallying point for the mob. Hands raised and eyes closed, supposedly in prayer, on the diocese of both the House and the Senate. Jesus 2020, Jesus saves, repent or hell, banners held high in the mob. So please note, I said earlier, biblical Christians. The Christians who show up in the media tend to be wingnuts who barely know their Bibles except a few proof texts they use over and over and over again to support their twisted and false so-called Christian faith. Compared to that sort of coverage and therefore a false concept of what it means to be Christian, our biblical Christian place has been largely vacated, and our voices muted. But how can we serve the common good as a testimony to Jesus Christ in these days? How can we share a public faith, as Dr. Wolf suggests, and how can we do that well? How do we engage biblically? How do we relate biblically, even support, help, and partner biblically with the government that our one true living sovereign and good God has placed us under in our time and place? How can we be true Christians with a public faith? This is part two of our true Christians and true churches relating biblically to government in our time and place. And while I did not intentionally time this sermon to address recent events here in Canada and elsewhere, namely in my United States of America, I I do hope this morning to provide uh, some helpful principles for now and into the future. For example, we've been dealing with COVID now for approaching a year, and it isn't over, not even close. As a result, we've had to look to government more closely and more trustingly that they have our best interests, everyone's best interests in mind, and they are working for us all. I'll not surprise or offend anyone by noting that we had quite a tumultuous time in the States over the past four years, more honestly, and especially the last few months. But already, with a change of administrations, positive and hopeful change has happened and is happening in my dearly beloved United States of America, thankfully. To be sure, not all of the coming changes will be happy ones from a biblical values point of view. But to be fair, I and others predicted this happening more than five years ago. But the issues of personal and national character have been addressed clearly, decisively, if not finally. In the first part of this message last Sunday, we saw that one of the common and shared aspects of human being over the ages has been the desire, the need, 
the tendency toward affirming ourselves, forming ourselves into communities larger than ourselves. As we grew from divinely and uniquely created individuals, Adam and Eve, into family units, then into larger communities requiring more organization and administration and management. And so we began forming for ourselves what we now call government. One of the several truths we learn from Romans chapter 13 and elsewhere in the Bible is that our sovereign and good God is involved in our forming of governments. It's one of many ways in which he superintends and provides for our well-being, our welfare, and even our flourishing. We also saw how from very early on in our human growth, we needed to learn and work, work out how we as believing people in the one true and living God could and should relate to the government under which the sovereign Lord placed us in our time and place, especially when those governments have not been Bible-based either generally or or sometimes they've been hostile. Over the last several years, or several hundred years rather, and as a people, we've moved towards self-government in the West, both by peaceful means, as here in Canada, and violent means, as was the case in the States, resulting in our governing ourselves, essentially, because we choose those who will represent us and who will do the work of governing for us. We also suggested a truer expression of Christian faith would lead us to be as granular in the practice of our faith as to see our responsibilities as citizens as a sacred stewardship to benefit ourselves and our loved ones, as well as others too. As Philippians 2 makes clear, verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Verse 4, let each of you look not only to his or her own interests, but also to the interests of others. Perhaps it won't be a surprise, but it still is just a profoundly cultural, countercultural truth to hear that the key change in our biblical thinking and in our Christian compassion when we go into the voting booth or send our absentee ballot or petition the government, is to remember that we biblical Christians are still to love our neighbors as ourselves, not only for your interests, but also for the interests of others. These admonitions are especially important and compelling for us who are blessed with representative government. We can exercise our civic responsibilities and stewardship as citizens in ways that are both biblical and look after the interests of others also. We can act without selfish ambition or conceit and, in humility, count others more significant than ourselves. And each of us can look not only to our own interests but also to the interests of others in the way we vote, in the way we relate to government. But as we also heard in our reading from Philippians 3 this morning, we are not only or even primarily citizens of Canada or Jamaica or the Philippines or Nigeria or the United States or from wherever wherever we might come in an increasingly globalized world. While the Bible does not require true Christians and true churches to give up our national citizenship or allegiances, our primary citizenship 
as biblical born-again Christians is now in the heavenlies. That's what the text actually says. And our ultimate allegiance must be to Jesus Christ as Lord, as verse 20 and 21 say. But our citizenship is in the heavenlies. And from there, or, or from where, or from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Our citizenship is in the heavenlies. Now let's turn to Romans 13. This morning, my message is subtitled, and this is what I want you to pay attention to, a fresh, comprehensive understanding of Romans 13. By that I mean, as I said last week, we must understand and apply the text for our time and place, not as if we're still in first century Rome. We're not first century Romans. We're 21st century Canadians. We're 21st century Jamaicans. We're 21st century Afghans. We're 21st century Nigerians. We're 21st century Filipinos. We're 21st century Americans. We're even from 21st century Saskatchewan. As we noted last Sunday, God did not teleport Justin Trudeau to be the emperor of Canada. Canadians elected him to be prime minister. Similarly, God did not teleport Joe Biden or anyone else for that matter to be emperor of America. Americans elected him to be president. Indeed, we don't have emperors at all, at least not here in Canada or in the United States today. But we don't set aside this text as anachronistic any more than we interpret it as 2,000 years ago. We are Christians as were they who first received this letter to the Roman church. Consequently, we Christians in the year 2021 in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada, 2,000 years later and several light years in every possible way from those Roman Christians, we need a recurrently fresh and culturally cohesive understanding of God's word and scripture to us. Yes, it was written first to them, but by faith we receive it also equally to us. Perhaps especially a text such as Romans 13 because it seems quite prescriptive. It's simply not sufficient to know what it meant to them then and apply that today. We must reinterpret, understand anew, and reapply it for our time and place. Unlike the Roman Christians, we can have significant influence if we steward it. If we steward it, both Christians and local churches directly and indirectly, as citizens and residents, and all by God's grace, of course. We may not feel like it or think we do, but those who govern, from the counselor to the mayor, to the member of the legislature, to the parliament, from the premier to the prime minister, all of them do so because we've voted them in and given them the authority to govern. This self-governing model is not explicitly contemplated in the scriptures, mainly because the scriptures have a particular historical context that they come from, and we are in a very different historical context. Nevertheless, our goal is to understand what Romans 13 and other texts meant to them then, to prayerfully discern the principles being revealed to us now. Then and only then can we understand how best to apply the whole Bible 
to our lives and to our ministries today. One final point as we move to the text. God still gives the authority to govern, just as he did in first century Rome, as hard as that is to grasp. But effectively, wherever God gives us the grace to be within a government that is self or representative governing, he gives us the authority for our own governance. And in turn, we entrust it to those who represent us in government. And so the sovereign Lord is still behind the governing authority through us as we manifest the character of Christ, including in the manner of our political discourse, but based upon truth and life, as we, if we, relate biblically to government, even in our voting record. So when we read in Romans 13, verses 1 through 7, through the complementary lens of Philippians 2 from last week and Philippians 3 from this week, which has relevance for any text in any age, we should begin to see our responsibility of stewardship as Christian citizens committed to look after the interests of others. Also, verse 1 of Romans 13, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. There is a familiar formulation in American politics that expresses the purpose and the character of representative self-governance. And I do think it also applies, for the most part anyway, here in Canada. You've heard it before, no doubt. Government of the people, by the people, for the people. This is a summary of representative self-governance. Verse 1 in Romans chapter 13 is the main point of truth, the main point of this section of text, verses 1 through 7. This leads us right into the central truth of our message from God's word. It's in the upper left-hand corner of your bulletins if you happen to be using one or looking through one. Here it is. It's the same from last week. In times and places, God in Christ Jesus graces us with representative governments, and we're there. Most of us who are watching, I think, probably, are either in the U.S. or in Canada. We have people who are regularly watching from both places. And we're both in similar governments, not the same. Parliamentary government is, is quite different than, than the representative government in the United States, but they're both representative forms of self-governance. So I think this applies to both. In times and places, God in Christ Jesus graces us with representative governance. He sovereignly gives us government we deserve. We literally choose our governments on a regular basis. The role of the true Christian and true church is to bring the salt of obedience to Jesus Christ and the light of his gospel into the whole space, including the areas of politics and economics and government, foreign policy even perhaps. Now this might not be true, and I'd suggest it would not have been true for our brothers and sisters in Christ in first century Rome. They had no input in their governance. That doesn't mean God was powerless as to their governance. It simply means it wasn't representative. 
not true for us. We have significant input into our governors, and so to the extent God can be seen as establish our establishing our governing authority, he does so through the governed, through us. In other words, voting is a sacred stewardship to be exercised by making choices that are not only in our own interests, but also in the interests of others. I want us to think back to the time we last voted. Now, I'm going to stop there for just a second because I know that I'm talking to some people who have never voted by choice. It's not because they're not old enough, but because they've just chosen not to. I want to encourage you to involve yourself in that opportunity for you to have influence in our government. But for those of us who voted last time, whenever that last time was, for Americans, that might have been very recently. For Canadians, that might have been a little while ago. Whenever it was, if you had had in mind the interests of others also, would you have voted the same way today? Think about that for a second. If when you went into your voting place, you had in that process, in that moment, the interests of others and not only your own interests in mind, would you have voted the same way? Or if you did it today, would you vote the same way today? The scripture is clear in Romans 13.1, whether we're happy with an election result or not, we're to submit ourselves to the governing authorities as to God. So long as such submission doesn't require us to break our allegiance to God in Christ Jesus and his word. Now, every verse following, verses 2 through 7, are applications of Romans 13.1 or perhaps even illustrations. They tell us how properly to live in submission to and in right relationship with government. They show us or they give us examples for what submitting ourselves to government looks like. We know that because the next word is therefore. And it holds for the rest of the section through verse 7, although we have another therefore in a few verses. So we read the whole verse 2, Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Now at first, verse 2 might seem to say we can't object. We can't protest. We have no voice. We need to smile and bear whatever our government lays upon us. Again, yes and no. A fundamental right in representative government, which, which Christians have available to us without violating any principle of Scripture, is the ability, even the responsibility, to address issues of injustice, unfairness, and immorality being manifested on our watch and effectively in our name of the people, by the people, for the people. So rebellion, no. Violent protest, certainly not. Lawful redress, yes. However, we should be very cautious when doing so. 
Christians ought not to be or to be seen as not doing our civic part or being privileged or precious, but looking also to the interests of others. We must also avoid having one or two pet causes that concern us, perhaps exclusively, but remain blind to other, perhaps even greater manifestations of injustice, unfairness, and immorality being manifested in the midst of, or against, or imposed upon others. As biblical Christians, we continually look not only to our own interests, but also to the interests of others, even, perhaps especially, in our civic discourse and decision-making. So how are we doing? Are we seeing or hearing how we might fulfill our civic stewardship differently than we have in the past? Perhaps better, hopefully more biblically, to look after our own interests, yes, those of our loved ones, yes, but to others also. We're trying to see beyond the compartmentalization of our lives, our biblical Christian lives, into spiritual parts and secular parts, into God's parts and my parts, into God's parts and our parts. In verses 3 and 4, we read, For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. This must have been a very hard pill to swallow for our first century Roman brothers and sisters. They lived their lives under the emperor Nero, one of the most corrupt, evil, bloodthirsty, and immoral leaders in the history of the world, and he hated Christians. It was indeed a life-threatening condition to be a Christian living in first century Rome. I'd venture to say that there may not be any parallel to him in the world today. Though there are corrupt, evil, bloodthirsty, and immoral leaders today, there always will be. So what's the answer to them? It's easy for me to say, I know, but I think it's also the answer to us. I honestly believe the life in the Spirit, producing the fruit of the Spirit, is the answer in any age. Will that, will that change Nero's mind? No, but it'll be faithful to God and be good examples to all of those around us and will fulfill every single word of Romans chapter 13. In Galatians 5, we read, and I'm just gonna, I'm gonna give a summary of the whole chapter here. So if you're following along, I'll be jumping from verses, verse 1 to 13 to 16 to 22 um, and 23. Listen to the summary of, of, of the, the message of Galatians 5, which is about living by the Spirit, in the Spirit. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Verse 13, for you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Can you hear the consistent message? 
And, or, or but, I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Verse 22, and, or but, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, most importantly, against such things there is no law. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Against such things, there is no law. That sounds strangely like a spiritual approach, a prescription for living out the true biblical Christian life and the true biblical Christian fellowship and ministry of true local churches. Whether or not we're under oppressive governments. And let me just say... A, a, a personal word to everyone out there who might, 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 be, might be seeing this. I hear from time to time people talking about Marxism and communism uh, growing up in Canada and the United States and oppressive, oppression from government. Let me just say, you've never seen a Marxist. You've never seen a communist. You've never been under an oppressive government. Now, there might be some of our friends who have come from someplace else to, to, to live here in Winnipeg or, or in the United States, but if, if you're a native-born American, you, unless you're indigenous, you could say you have. We've never known oppression, and yet we somehow want to act like we're oppressed. We are not. I wish we could talk to the first century Christians about oppression But especially, this approach is important for us under representative self-governance, when it's so easy to serve ourselves and justify it as freedom. To close, I want us to notice that Paul, by the Spirit here, insists that we do our civic duty. We are not precious, and we are not exempt from fulfilling our responsibilities to our neighbors, our communities, our cities, our provinces, and to our nation. We must do our part. It is the testimony to Christ that we are to give to others and, and to do so as we are good citizens as well. Look with me to verses 5, 6, and 7. Therefore, there's the other therefore in service to verse 1 still, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Verse 6, For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. We can summarize those last three verses very simply. Christians and churches, we must do our part. And not just in the church, as if we're not fellow residents of our neighborhoods, communities, cities, states, and provinces, and nations, but as the church, we share the load for the common good, as well as for our own good and the good of our children and our children's children. Last week, I noted that I'd heard Romans 13 referred to many times by some of my conversation partners over the last four-plus years 
to justify the previous American president, his administration, and their support of the same. In essence, saying our guy is God's guy. How did they know that? Well, because they and God got him elected, of course. But since the recent election, as related to the new president and his administration, I've heard Romans 13 referred to zero times. Zero times. Instead, we got the storming of the Capitol on January 6th, and that's their language, not mine. And many, if not nearly all, of those folks would certainly identify themselves as Christian. So to us all, dual citizens on earth and in heaven, I'd say whether we like the results of this election or that, the makeup of this government or that, let's be consistently biblical Christian, looking not only for our own interests but also the interests of others. And as we close for this morning, let's, let's review one last time the central truth of the message for this morning and from last Sunday. In times and places, God in Christ Jesus graces us with representative government. He sovereignly gives us government we deserve. The role of the true Christian and the true church is to bring the salt of obedience to Jesus Christ and the light of his gospel into the whole space. Now, don't go anywhere. I've got a brief word after we pray and sing. Let's pray together. God, our Father, we pray that you will take these words, however many of them are yours, and open up our minds and our hearts to you and to apply them and to work through them. It's, I've been at this for 25 years, this, this particular question. This is the first time I've tried to put it down in any sort of systematic way. So, uh, Lord, correct me. Um, Help me to understand how to be a true Christian, a true believer, disciple of Jesus Christ in the midst of a true local congregation of biblical Christian disciples of Jesus. And help us, Lord, to share your gospel in in every way that we possibly can on every opportunity that comes our way. I do thank you for the body that you've placed us in, this Bethesda church with its history of engaging the world with the gospel, and I pray, Lord, that you will continue to ground us on the gospel, teach us your word and scripture, and lead us by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. For sure, I've got a new favorite song. That is definitely it. I'd like for us to finish with Psalm 24. That was Psalm 24, essentially set to music. And um, it's entitled, oddly, in my English Standard Version preaching Bible, The King of Glory. It's a psalm of David. The earth is Yahweh's. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness therein. The world and those who dwell therein, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of Yahweh, the hill of the Lord? 
And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from Yahweh, the Lord, and righteousness from the God of his salvation, from Elohim of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of Elohim of Jacob, of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? Yahweh, mighty and strong. Yahweh, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? Yahweh of hosts. He is the king of glory. And we know him to be Jesus Christ. So in all these matters, we do have a king, one king, and he is Jesus the Lord. Let's pray together. God, our Father, we thank you for this opportunity to worship and to praise and to hear and to respond in faith, to believe and to obey. I pray, Lord, that we will all have that response to your word, to your son, Jesus, whom we praise, worship, and adore. It's in his name that we pray, that we, that we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. I'll see you next time. Thanks for coming.